Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Norina Hertz talks about how we can come together in a world that's pulling apart in her new book, The Lonely Century. Described by The Observer as one of the world's leading thinkers and by Vogue as one of the world's most inspiring women, Norina Hertz is a renowned thought leader, academic and broadcaster. Her previous bestsellers, The Silent Takeover, IOU and Eyes Wide Open, are published in more than 20 countries. Norina has an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and a PhD from Cambridge University and is currently based at the Institute for Global Prosperity at UCL, where she holds an honorary professorship. And today we're going to be talking about Norina's latest book, which is The Lonely Century, Coming Together in a World That's Pulling Apart. Norina, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, Neil, for having me on. First of all, we should talk about how the pandemic that we are all currently living through is intensifying a lot of the things that you talk about in this book. For sure. Obviously, we're living through a very unique moment in history where isolation is a shared experience. But I think what's really important to understand is that even before the pandemic struck, this was the lonely century. I'd been working on this book for two and a half years before the pandemic struck. So even though loneliness is something that's very much in our minds today, as my research shows, even before the pandemic in the United Kingdom, one in five adults felt lonely most or all of the time. One in eight Brits said that they didn't have a single friend that they could rely upon. In the United States, People are so lonely, they're renting friends or paying to be cuddled. And we're really in the midst and have been for a considerable number of years of a global loneliness crisis that's affecting our health, affecting our economy, and even affecting our democracy. And recent months have only intensified and exacerbated this. Let's talk about how we're defining loneliness here then, because of course, one can be lonely if one lives on our own and, and never has contact with another human being, but also we can be lonely surrounded by people. Yes, it can be incredibly lonely in a crowd, as many of us have experienced. Cities can feel very lonely for many people, all these people rushing around, not looking at you in the face, go, 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 
fascinatingly that richer a city the faster people walk in the city and the denser a city the less civil it is and being on our own doesn't necessarily mean that we're lonely i lived on my own for many years and you know most of that time wasn't categorized by being lonely even though research does show that people who live on their own are more likely to feel lonely but the way i define loneliness is perhaps broader than some listeners might be expecting because how I see loneliness is it's not just feeling a lack of intimacy or craving company from friends or family. It's not only feeling unsupported by those who are closest to you, but loneliness as I see it is also about feeling unsupported and uncared for by the government, by the state, by your employer. It's about feeling invisible at work and to your fellow citizens too. So I'm defining loneliness as a phenomenon that is essentially political as well as personal, economic as well as born out of an individual experience. With this definition, it really is clear that this is the loneliest century that we've experienced to date and um, throws up lots of big questions about what we need to do in order to make people feel more connected and come together again. And as we go, we'll talk about some ways in which this particular century has exacerbated the ways in which people are lonely. Right at the beginning of the book, there's an absolutely fascinating example of how elderly Japanese women have started to deal with loneliness. Can you give us that example? Yes. In Japan, the fastest growing group of people being incarcerated are pensioners. And researchers who've looked into this phenomenon have found that the main reason so many elderly people are committing relatively minor crimes like shoplifting is because they're intentionally doing so in order to be jailed because they're so lonely in their normal lives that they're looking, actively craving the community and care that they can get in jail. And Saito San, a woman who I write about in my book, is one such example, lived on her own, hadn't spoken to her family for many years, like many of these Japanese pensioners who are being jailed. And seeing jail, as one of her contemporaries said, as an oasis, a place where I can find company and connection. And it's heartbreaking, really, to think that life has become so lonely for elderly people in Japan, for such a significant number, that they're choosing jail rather than be on their own. Loneliness can be actually harmful to our health in in ways that are actually quite astonishing, that are more dangerous than in some ways, you know, smoking or a bad diet. Why? Tell us why loneliness is actually unhealthy. So when we think of loneliness, we immediately realise that it has mental health implications. And it often does. There is a link between loneliness and anxiety, loneliness and depression. But What researchers have found in recent years is that loneliness also affects our physical health because we are creatures of togetherness. We are hardwired to connect. And so the way we've evolved is that loneliness is a state that is so uncomfortable to us that we are meant to do all we can to connect with other people, to hunt in packs, to be part of a tribe. And so physiologically, what happens when we feel lonely is our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our levels of cortisol, the stress hormone in our bodies goes up. 
and as such our ability to fight infection goes down and our levels of inflammation in our body go up both of which when taking place time and time again chronically mean that we're much less able to fight even serious disease and much more prone to serious disease so loneliness it turns out is as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and increases our risk of heart disease, dementia, stroke by tens of percentage points. And yet it's this huge public health crisis and yet barely on politicians' radars. And there's a, there's a terrible double bind in loneliness because when we spend time on our own, if we are lonely, not only do we gradually begin to lose social skills, but we actually become more antisocial, i.e. more aggressive to other people we do meet. Yes, when one's feeling lonely, the tendency is, and of course these are always tendencies, so not everyone feeling lonely is going to identify with this, but the tendency is to withdraw, to say to others, no, I don't need you, I don't want you, to push others back. That's the tendency one has when one's lonely. And also it turns out a tendency to be actively aggressive and hostile to newcomers. This insight comes out of research that was done on mice. Researchers isolated mice in a cage and then they observed what happened when new mice were put into the cage. And what they discovered was the longer the mouse was isolated, the more viciously it attacked the newcomer. And you talk about some communities where studies have been done to be discovered that, you know, people that live in these communities have longer life expectancy, greater happiness levels, which is interesting because also some of those small communities are ones which we might ordinarily expect to be hostile to outsiders, insular. Well, the first part of your kind of question, I think, raises a really interesting paradox in a way about community, which is that we shouldn't romanticize community because community is great at protecting those and looking after and helping those who it includes within its boundaries. But communities can also be very exclusive and excluding. So I think that's something that is important when we're thinking about rebuilding communities. We also need to think about how do we bridge different communities. But within the cohesive communities, can deliver great benefits to their members, including health benefits. One of the groups that I looked at in this regard are the Haredim in Israel. These are the ultra-religious Jews who kind of might be familiar with wearing, typically the men will wear big black hats and the women be very modestly dressed. And these communities, which are very insular, researchers have found have longer life expectancy in Israel, the Israeli population in general. And this was a very surprising outcome for researchers because on all standard measures, this group of ultra-religious Jews shouldn't have better life expectancy. I mean, they don't eat particularly healthily. I mean, arguably, a lot of the very tasty food that they like is also higher in fat and higher in and, you know, less good for you. This isn't a group who exercise much, nor is it a group who um, get vitamin D very much because they're so modestly clothed that even though they're living in Israel, they're not getting the sun rays. So there's quite a few objective metrics which might suggest actually that the converse would be true, that they would have lower life expectancy. 
But that isn't the case. By a number of years, they live longer as a group. And researchers studying the phenomenon have come to the conclusion that it's the community that really delivers this health dividend because it's the fact that when you're within the community, you know that people are there to help you out, are there for you. The fact that if you are in trouble financially or otherwise, people will step in and look after you. Just the fact that knowing people care for you and knowing people help you actually provides us with a hormone called oxytocin, the love hormone, which actually is a positive for our health. But also in practical sense, you know, if you're sick, and someone is coming and visiting you, we know that patients who have visitors and have family members who care for them typically recover at a faster rate than others. So this community really benefits from the care and compassion and kindness within the community. Of course, for those who within the community who transgress the norms, the community can be very excluding so that's why we shouldn't we shouldn't romanticize community whilst recognizing that it does deliver huge benefits. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Norina Hertz, and we're talking about her latest book, The Lonely Century, coming together in a world that's pulling apart. And Norina, you've you've written 
in the past a lot about the rise of global capitalism and neoliberalism and and there are various ways in this book in which you talk about how that also contributes to a sort of general feeling of loneliness not least in this sort of last era of austerity where we've seen social areas where people would gather together libraries clubs and various services all under attack and we'll talk later on about how the world of work has changed and technology has changed in various ways but more surprising perhaps you also talk about how loneliness is a cause in some ways of the general political shift to the right in terms of the rise of populism like people like Donald Trump for instance tell us how so actually my interest in the rise of right-wing populism was one of the starting points for me beginning researching the whole subject of loneliness because I wanted to better understand why so many people were turning to politicians on the extremes. And I started interviewing and hearing from right-wing populist voters across the globe in France, in Italy, in the United States. And one of the things that kept coming up in my interviews with them were how lonely and isolated they felt that they were and how they had found community and kinship and friendship in their membership of right-wing populist parties. And I started digging into the academic literature and it became clear to me that from about 1992, researchers started to get evidence of a link between people who felt socially isolated and people voting for right-wing populists. Initially, the research was done in France, but later in other countries, And researchers, for example, who looked at who voted for Trump in 2016 found that compared to Hillary Clinton, Trump voters were much more likely to say that they didn't have close friends or acquaintances, much more likely to say that they only could rely upon themselves in times of need. And, you know, whether it was Eric, the Parisian baker, who I interviewed, or Giorgio, the small businessman from Milan, who I spoke to, or Rusty, the East Tennessee railroad worker, who I heard from. Each of them made clear to me how abandoned they had felt before these right-wing populist leaders emerged, who they believed saw them, heard them, made them visible. Rusty, the railroad worker, spoke a lot about how he'd lost the brotherhood that came with his employee on the railroads as railroads lost work. Other Trump supporters talked about the communion they found at Trump's rallies, which, of course, he was so desperate to start again, even during the heights of the pandemic, knowing the role that they played to his supporters in delivering community connection with their branded MAGA gear and synchronized chants. And populist leaders really consciously played to the sense of abandonment that their supporters have had. If you look at the rhetoric that Trump used or Le Pen uses, it's around forgotten people. You know, you the forgotten people, but I don't forget you. And, you know, it's a message that clearly continues to resonate over Biden may have won the election, but over 70 million Americans still did vote for Donald Trump, predominantly people who felt marginalized and especially groups who felt that historically they had not felt such like white working class men. 
This is really a, a sort of echo from history as Hannah Arendt saw loneliness as one of the causes of totalitarianism you talk about. Yes, so Hannah Arendt, the incredible thinker who had escaped from Nazi Germany after the end of World War II, she really tried to understand what drove a country to follow the Nazi regime. And in her famous book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, she identified loneliness as a clear driver, loneliness as the fodder for both the victims and the perpetrators of totalitarianism. And as I was doing my research and as I was hearing from people and doing interviews and looking at the contemporary literature, I kept on being struck by echoes of Arendt's writing in the contemporary situation, which was which was really disturbing and also made clear how imperative it is that we address loneliness, not only as a health issue, but also as a political issue too. You've already raised the idea of the lonely city, the busy metropolis and the fast pace of, of modern life. But let's talk about how the ways in which the design of cities is now exacerbating our loneliness. Many contemporary cities, if you walk around and start really noticing what's around you, you'll see what we might think of as examples of hostile architecture dotted around them. In Camden, in London, where I live, you can see a bench, for example, known as the Camden Bench. And this bench, at first glance, might look like a normal bench you might see in the street. But if you look a bit closer, you realise that the way it's been designed, its sloping shape means that actually it's not a bench that would be comfortable to sit on. It's a bench actively designed to make sure that people don't sit or linger on it, or rather specific types of people, a bench designed so that a homeless person can't lie on it, a bench designed so that young teenagers can't skateboard on it. And throughout our cities, we see examples of seats, benches, fences designed expressly to keep those deemed undesirable out. Now, some may argue, well, you know, this is about effective community policing and this is about ensuring that our cities are safe. And yet, firstly, the idea that this sort of broken windows, as one might think of it, policing works actually has proven not to be the case in research that has been done. But also, it comes at a cost to everyone because that same bench which the skateboarder can't skate on is also going to be the bench that the elderly person can't perch on and look at the world's walk by and chat to from. That same sloping seat at the bus shelter designed so that a homeless person can't lie on it is also going to be the seat which will make it harder for the person with multiple sclerosis to be able to use that bus stop to take a bus. So we exclude others at our own peril. And some of the examples in the book of the extent proprietors of properties are willing to go to exclude people are really quite something. There's even in some shopping malls a very, very high-pitched noise issued that only young people can hear in order to say that young people don't disperse there or even elsewhere um, special lights blast across the uh, a shopping mall 
which expose young people's acne in order to keep them away. So it's um it's quite incredible, really, how much effort is put into making sure that some groups really can't enjoy and benefit from what ostensibly should be communal spaces. I want to talk about how the ways in which, as I mentioned earlier, the, the world of work has changed in ways that can increase our loneliness. And I'm feeling that rather intensely at the moment, working from home. But here I'm more thinking of the ways in which employment has changed in terms of the gig economy, precarity of work, and the various surveillance technologies that are used around these jobs. Um, so how has, how has these new technologies made our working lives more lonely? Well, one of the things I did in researching this book was I actually, under a pseudonym, interviewed for a job. And what was particularly noteworthy about this interview process that I underwent for my research was that I wasn't interviewed by a person. I was interviewed by a machine, by an algorithm. So I applied for a job, I had an interview, but I wasn't speaking to a person. And instead, every facial movement I was making, the tone of my voice, the cadence of my voice, the speed at which I was speeding, my lexicon was all being passed by a computer and by a computer program to determine whether or not I was a viable candidate. And that experience of being interviewed in that way, which is increasingly common now amongst big companies who are having to process many, many interviews at scale, was an extremely alienating one and really gave me first-hand insight into some of the changes that are going on in the workplace when it comes to machines, algorithms determining our fate. And in the workplace more generally, what we've been seeing in recent years and accelerating actually during this period of remote working has been a rise in companies not only using computers to hire us but also using computers to monitor us day by day. So there's now boom industry of spyware essentially where employees are being watched, um, their keyboard strokes looked at, what they're typing looked at, their speed looked at, whether they're staying on their computer or not, all noted second by second throughout the day. It's an age of the workplace is increasingly panoptican and with employers monitoring more explicitly and more continuously our working day. And that is an incredibly isolating and alienating experience for workers. If you add to that another profound shift in work that we've seen in recent years, which is the rise of the gig economy and more and more people on short-term contracts or zero-hour contracts or in precarious employ, what we see is that the balance of power between capital and labor has really, in recent years, shifted very much towards capital without the mitigating institutions like trade unions, which in previous decades did play a significant role, especially when it came to lower paid work and ensuring that workers were protected and cared for. And so for increasing numbers of people, and this is where it ties in again with the rise in right-wing populism and for those of us trying to make sense of Trump's continued strength in the 2020 election, it's all speaks to the fact that 
increasing numbers of people, especially low-paid workers, are feeling powerless, invisible and alienated and looking to be seen and heard wherever they can find that. One more question for me, and there's lots of things in this book that we haven't talked about, not least the ways in which our addiction to our smartphones, uh, a tool which we may think is a a means of connecting us with with, with many, many more people in various ways, has has contributed to the uh, general malaise of loneliness in this century. But I, I started off talking about ways in which the pandemic, COVID, that we're all living through now has intensified loneliness. Obviously, again, you said you started to write this book before this pandemic started. But I wondered if perhaps now we're living through it, might this be a way for us to kickstart looking at ways to tackle this epidemic of loneliness once we're out of it? Absolutely. I mean, I do think that there's a real opportunity now to recreate and rebuild a world in which community connection and compassion are much more at its heart. And there is historical precedent for this. The National Health Service was, of course, founded in the wake of a big global crisis and tragedy, World War II. In the United States, President Roosevelt's New Deal, his program, which uh, had huge investment in public spaces, public arts, ensured that workers had much greater rights, came after the Great Depression. So historically, crises can provide impetus for change. And there's so much that governments and businesses and us as individuals can do. Just a few to highlight what's essential now moving forward is that governments commit to investing in the infrastructure of community, in rebuilding and reinvesting in the libraries, the youth clubs, the community centres that saw their investment absolutely starved since 2008, the financial crisis onwards, it's absolutely essential that we have physical spaces where we can come together. We can't come together if there's nowhere physically where we can do that. Governments have a role to play too in regulating social media companies. As you say, my book has a whole chapter on the way that social media companies are making us less connected to each other and feel more atomized and lonely. In many ways, social media companies are, in my mind, the tobacco companies of the 21st century and should be regulated as such, especially when it comes to children. And I would go as far as to recommend banning addictive social media for under 16-year-olds. I think we can go even further and follow someone like New Zealand's Premier Jacinda Ardem, who's really put tackling loneliness and improving levels of trust between citizens right in the heart of her political project and also her budgetary process, making sure that policies are not only taken in order to improve traditional economic metrics like GDP, but also will improve metrics like trust and loneliness. And also right now, in the um, short term, our government needs to be investing significantly more in tackling the health implications, physical and mental, arising from months of lockdown and enforced isolation and social distancing, because the toll it's taking on the population is already significant, and other governments are committing significant new funds to that. For example, Norway and Sweden have both announced big significant spends on mental health specifically to address the mental and physical downside of lockdown and isolation. And then 
us as individuals, because this isn't just about top-down change. There's so much that we can do from putting our phones down and being more present with those around us, just actually being there with others when we are in the room with others, to supporting our local communities, buying in our local shops, showing up at local community events, initiating local community events, valuing kindness more in others, whether it is our co-worker, our friends, or our partners. Kindness is something that really has been devalued as a quality in recent years. And if we are to come together again, we need to address that. And I think finally, and again, acutely right now, it's really important to think about, is there anyone in your own network who might want to hear from you, who might be feeling lonely? And if there is, reach out to them, because just showing someone that you are thinking about them, that you care for them, that you remember them can make a huge difference to someone's life. So, so much that we can do individually and collectively to ensure that we do reconnect and do come together again. So I've been talking to Noreena Hertz. We've been talking about her latest book, The Lonely Century, Coming Together in a World That's Pulling Apart, which is out in the UK from SEPTA. Noreena, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you so much, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money.